Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you, Maddie. Thanks very much. It's an honor to be here on your beautiful campus, and it's been a pleasure getting to know all of you. So, let me begin with a simple question. Who are you? Now, my students are baffled by this question. Well, I'm me, right? right? So we pursue the matter. Are you essentially female or male? Does your past determine who you are? Are you endowed with an immortal soul? Or will you wink out at the utterly improbable moment of your death? As we all know, undergraduates are immortal. That's what they tell me. Of course, even a cursory glance at this question uh, makes it clear uh, that there's an important truth to be confronted. Your metaphysical commitments matter. Now, what is metaphysics? Well, meta, beyond or transcending. Fusis, nature. So when you're doing metaphysics, you are giving an account of ultimate reality of what is ultimately real. This kind of question and the answers it provides are completely familiar to us. So if I say to a physicist that this surface is solid, she will reply, no, it's a moving lattice of particles. So that kind of question and response, uh, questions that seek what is essential and fundamental in the world around us, fuel, of course, what we call chemistry, biology, physics, uh, in short, science. But these questions are philosophical. And the Greeks began to ask these kinds of questions in the 6th and 5th century BCE. But back to our question. What is ultimately real about you? What you take to be real about yourself and the world through which you move has immediate and profound consequences. So let me begin with a striking example of this claim. Ah, yes. Ah, Beautiful, isn't it? It's Raphael's uh, fresco at the Vatican, the School of Athens. And here we see Plato and Aristotle clearly gesturing towards what they take to be real. Yes? These gestures are potent, and we will return to them. But let's begin with Plato, who surely stands at the beginning of metaphysical thinking in the West. The central feature of Platonic metaphysics, as some of you know, is, of course, the theory of the forms. And this diagram, which is called the divided line for obvious reasons, is taken from one of Plato's dialogues, The Republic, and let's take a look. As you can see, this is a scale of what is real. Now, in order to assess what reality is, we need to have a definition of it. Plato's is straightforward. For something to be real, it must be perfect, unchanging, and eternal. So, what in this room is real? Chairs. <laughs> Chairs. 
sadly, right, everything in this room, including this beautiful campus and all of it, is going to go out of existence. Concepts are therefore that which is most real. They neither wax nor wane, and they are necessary and not contingent. Hence the platonic forms from Eidos form. So here's the standard example I'm obliged to give you. What's this? What's this? What's this? <laughs> and what's this? You don't recognize the Louvre Abu Dhabi? I will, I will tell you that uh, my colleague and I are still having Stendhal syndrome from yesterday we saw it. It's just absolutely amazing. All right. But what you were able to discern when you got over the wheel and steering wheel and all that in the Louvre, you, what did you discern? You discerned circularity, right? Now, this is something my cat cannot do, right? The cat's bowl is circular, so I say, kitty, circle, circle. And the cat, what does the cat see? There's no food, right? The cat cannot discern circularity. The cat can perceive an empty something or other. All right, so, uh, so, so the circle is a form, is an idea, and it is that to which all material contingent circles correspond, and so too with the virtues. They also correspond to an ideal. So in short, the forms are absolute concepts such as circularity, equality, and absolute standards like courage and justice. All right. So it is also, remember the diagram we just glanced at, it is a two-world picture, the world of appearances, the world we're in right now, and the world of these concepts, the forms. Now, here's a good question. How can we poor mortals gain knowledge of these forms? That is, how did you all pull off this amazing feat? You all said circle, circle, circle. How did you do that? Right? Well, uh, we humans can come to know the forms because we are equipped to know them. Each of us is, is endowed with a soul, suke, which simply means animate principle. And that suke has a copy of these absolute standards and concepts. Plato's picture of our suke has three parts. Appetite, our bodily demands for food and sex and so forth. Our spirit, our effective lives, the drive and will behind our pursuits and our intellect, which contains a copy of the forms. At death, what will survive of a person? Well, of course, your intellect will, because your intellect contains a copy of that which is perfect, unchanging, and eternal. So then, what then are we human beings? We are mortal souls, those are real, who are embodied, not real. All right. Now, let's turn to Aristotle. So we've just done this. Now we're going to do this. All right, there he is. Uh, Aristotle was the student of Plato in his academy at the age of 17. And he was affiliated with Plato's academy for 20 years until Plato's death. And that's of interest to us. All right. Now, there are important differences between the views of Plato and Aristotle, and I will sum them up in this way. 
Plato, the geometer, and Aristotle, the biologist. Now, this utterly reductive remark uh, seems to me to be a very helpful one. First of all, both philosophers can be said to be realists, which means they claim that there are truths about the cosmos that we can know or fail to know in the contrast case, roughly, would be relativists who believe the truth, the truth of a proposition depends on the context in which it is asserted. However, Plato's realism is very different from Aristotle's. What was real for Plato? Hmm? Forms, right. Uh, Plato's account, as we just said, is a two-world picture. Aristotle's is not. For Aristotle, there is just one world, this one. Remember the gesture. So this material world is, is the world, and it's our job to describe the purpose-driven laws of nature that govern it and to provide a taxonomy of the kinds of creatures observed in nature. Now, these differences might be seen as the result of temperament and experience. Plato, the mathematician, was drawn to pure and perfect ideas. Well, Aristotle, the itinerant biologist, was accustomed to gathering samples of a type, noting similarities and differences, and then inferring the common form. So consider, um, imagine that you're going to write a treatise on the adorable wood duck, right? So what would you do if you were going to write a treatise on the wood duck? Would you sit in your study and contemplate the form of the wood duck and the nature of wood duckhood, is that what you do? What would you do? You'd go spend five years in a duck blind in all kinds of weather, right? And you would do what? You would gather data about what the wood duck did. And you would be attuned to, of course, regularities. And there would be the occasional rogue wood duck doing something odd. And so you'd have to be on your toes for that which is anomalous, right, that, that doesn't fit, that is not law-like. And at the end, you would write your grand treatise on the wood duck uh, based on the evidence you've gathered. The wood duck is nothing more nor nothing less than its embodied behaviors. Now, Aristotle's method is, is clearly at work throughout all of his um, uh, work. As he says in Book 7 of, the, of his Ethics, we must set out the appearances and, first of all, go through the puzzles. In this way, we must prove the common beliefs, the indoxa. Ideally, all the common beliefs, but if not all, most of them, and the most important. For if the objections are solved and the common beliefs are left, it will be an adequate proof. All right? So we begin with the ordinary, largely unreflective beliefs of people, and we examine them for consistency and truth, with an eye to preserving as much endoxa as possible. Now, you can see why this has to be the case for Aristotle. If we're, if we're trying to figure out uh, human nature, part of the relevant data will be what we say about ourselves, right? And we do say a lot of things about ourselves. So a kind of mutual adjustment goes on between gathering the data, what, what's, what's the endoxa, what is, what is, what is, what, what's being said, what, what's, being, what's the behavior, and theorizing about it, but you want to stay very close. 
All right. This is where Plato and Aristotle firmly part ways. And I have another handy way to think about this difference. Plato the radical. Aristotle the conservative. Now, I don't mean the usual kind of noisome political uh, distinction. I mean that Plato was willing to theorize beyond appearances. Whereas Aristotle wants to accommodate, make sense of appearances. Now, both strategies have obvious power and appeal. Both have their drawbacks. Gee, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, doesn't it? No. So the triumph of the heliocentric account over the geocentric account is precisely due to radical thinking of the platonic sort. Aristotle, however, wishes to conserve endoxa, right? Commonly held opinion. Well, what do most people say about women? Well, clearly in the ancient world, women were subordinate to men. They were the property of the relevant male, the father, husband, uncle, brother. The only jobs that women could have in this society were, of, of course, prostitution, right? vegetable seller, wet nurse, not much scope for advancement there. And here's the startling outcome. Plato and Aristotle, dwelling in the same culture, draw very different conclusions. For Plato, human beings are all essentially the same. Despite the manifold difference, differences in appearance, these differences are not real. Plato claims that everyone is endowed with a copy of the forms. Women, men, and as we see in his dialogue, the Mino, slaves. Because all persons have the same innate equipment, it follows that anyone with a gift for thinking should be permitted to hold the highest offices in the ideal state. That's, of course, uh, the subject of his dialogue, The Republic. Socrates argues that some men and some women are going to have this talent, and they should be educated and groomed in like fashion. The class of rulers in Plato's ideal state will include those women and men who have an aptitude for discerning the forms that is knowing reality. And that sounds like a good thing for rulers to be able to do. So Plato looks around his culture and sees that women are indeed disenfranchised, uneducated, essentially not members of the civic body. And yet he has the radical thought, it could be otherwise. For Aristotle, the human animal exists in a hierarchy, and he shapes his political thought in accordance with this. Aristotle looks at the very same society that Plato does and draws the opposite conclusion. Women and slaves must be in the position they're in for some reason. It must be their nature. So, Aristotle's biological thinking is driven by his metaphysical commitment to conserving appearances and to what is commonly believed. Aristotle thus defines the canonical human as male, since the male has the full complement of the rational capacity. The female has it, but it's, it's without authority, as he says, and therefore she must be subordinate to him. 
Now, it's rarely the case in the history of philosophy that we get to settle a question. But this one is, this one is. And by Aristotle's own empirical light. Plato argues that some persons will have a talent for thinking and that those who do should rule the state. Aristotle claims that the social and sexual hierarchy he observes in his culture must reveal something about nature itself. The problem with this kind of empirical thinking is that you have to deal with anomalies, right? So you might have the occasional brilliant woman or the, the occasional brilliant slave, but what, if, what about a s- scores of them? Thousands, millions. So clearly modernity has amply demonstrated that Plato's radical thinking about human ability is right. Well, I hope you can see that your metaphysical commitments matter. And there we are again. Uh, And, oh, by the way, here's yours truly. (laughs) And you can see which side I'm on, Team Plato. And that's actually Plato's Academy, which you can. It's it's very wonderful. It's in the outskirts of, of Athens. And that's it. It's an archaeological dig right in the middle of a park and a playground. So there I am throwing in my lot with Plato. He won that round, but, but trust me, there's many more battles to fight. You need to now ask yourself, what do I take to be most real about myself? Well, in the West, we do descend in great measure from these two potent and compelling accounts of human nature. And of course, Christian theology really takes up Neoplatonism, this idea of the immortality of the soul. Uh, that, that's very important. And now I'd like to discuss two philosopher descendants of these two views, Nietzsche and Sartre, and both of whom are anti-essentialists. That is, their respective accounts of human nature reject something that is fixed and given, an essence. Although that rejection is quite different for each. It's interesting. So, let's begin with Nietzsche's account of human nature. In his vexing, rhapsodic, and often confrontational way, he argues that human beings are fundamentally creatures made of cultural habits and customs, as well as the entrenched biases, prejudices, and predilections that are part of that inheritance. In fact, Nietzsche makes use of a vivid and powerful metaphor. Uh, to describe the human constitution, and let's look at it. All right. Learning transforms us. It does that which all nourishment does, which does not merely preserve, as the physiologist knows. But at the bottom of us, right down deep, there is, to be sure, something unteachable. A granite stratum of spiritual fate, a predetermined decision and answer to predetermined selected questions. In the case of every cardinal problem, there there exists an unchangeable this is I. One sometimes comes upon certain solutions to problems which inspire strong belief in us. Perhaps one thenceforth calls them convictions. Later one sees them as footsteps to knowledge, signposts to the problem we are, more correctly, to the great stupidity that we are to our spiritual fate, to the unteachable, right down deep. And speaking as a professor, the idea of that which is unteachable is really rather depressing. 
So this, this metaphor is consistently used by Nietzsche, and its metaphorical implications exist across the corpus of his work. A human being, argues Nietzsche, is a creature that absorbs cultural habits and practices. We grow up into a language or languages. We acquire ways of navigating our environment. We adopt rituals and comportments that bespeak the values of the culture we are born into. And values, moreover, we'll get to this, values that we should at some point question, raise questions about. We are also reflective creatures. So Nietzsche is claiming that we're made of these cultural materials. Human creatures receive or inherit many behaviors, not just mammalian instinct, but what he calls cultural instincts. Now, what is a cultural instinct? Well, as you can see, uh, Nietzsche's fond of the image of strata, a series of accretions acquired over thousands of years. If we want to know who we are, we must review these accumulated layers of practice, practices that may no longer make any sense, uh, and take a look at beliefs that are long disconnected from their origin. Now, in order to explain this, I have a rather homespun uh, story. A young woman is off to university, and she wishes to make her mother's delicious pot roast. And she remembers that her mother always cut off the end of the roast, and she's trying to Think about why she would do that. So she calls her mother. Mother, why did you do that? She says, you know, I don't know. Uh, my mother always did that. Let's give grandma a call. So they do. And grandmother says, my pan wasn't big enough. So uh, we inherit behaviors, right? Behaviors that structure our lives. All that cutting off of the end of the roast without fully understanding their origin. Not that origins are privileged, but it's the path that's taken that is instructive. So this is why we must become, at Nietzsche's urging, genealogists, and to use the complementary trope, archaeologists. And here's the first section of his work, Daybreak. In this book, you will discover a subterranean man at work, one who tunnels and mines and undermines, going forward slowly, cautiously, gently inexorable, without betraying much of the distress which protracted deprivation of light and air must entail. You might call him contented working there in the dark. And indeed, my patient friends, I shall now tell you what I was after down there. I descended into the depths. I tunneled into the foundations. I commenced an investigation and digging out of an ancient faith, one upon which we philosophers have for a couple of millennia been accustomed to build as if on the firmest of all foundations, and have continued to do so even though every building hitherto erected on them has fallen down. I commence to undermine our morality. So, we are made of these seriously intransigent cultural practices of the ages. Granitic, is, as he says, on the other hand, our very composite nature calls us to investigate this material of which we're made. Uh, if we want to know who we are, that's the question, who are we? We have to review these accumulated layers of practice. And much of what we find may be disconcerting or very disappointing. I give you the pot roast pan. Uh, but 
we've got to take his metaphor seriously. We really do. When he says that, that we are a granitic and a deep stupidity, what he means is that to change some of those views, and you can never know in advance which ones they will be, right, will take the equivalent of dialogic, earth-moving machinery. So in this passage, this is exactly what Nietzsche is proposing to do, to go down to the depths and dig up the ancient foundations of our moral behavior and thus find the deeply inconsistent and irrational material that is hidden there. And here we see that Nietzsche, is his project is really rather the reverse of Plato's. Instead of moving forward from the obscure and irrational terrain of custom and habit towards the light of reason, we move from our certainties about our beliefs into the twilight domain of inheritance. So the passage from beyond good and evil thus becomes clear. Our deep stupidity, our granite stratum, uh, that's, that is what we are made of and what we've inherited. The life of feeling for Nietzsche is older than the life of reason. And our conscious reflecting on why we do what we do cannot possibly do justice, says Nietzsche, to the vast unconscious reservoir of drives and instincts that primordially constitute every one of us. Now, we just, we've just come a long way from Plato and Aristotle. This is a thoroughly modern view of the self. We are not, as Plato would have it, an immortal soul. We are not an animal, as Aristotle would have it, who dwells in a polis, a city-state. Instead, each one of us is an admixture of, of social location and grooming and the cultural heritage that informs our development from the first moment. So, who are you according to Nietzsche? Well, you are a contingent and unique combination of cultural material expressed in a particular place and time. Thus, the platonic soul lives on in a fashion in that we are made out of claims like these. A person becomes who she has been socialized to be, but much of that material is metaphysical in nature. But what about the freedom to reject the notion of the soul's immortality or of biological determinism? What about that? Aren't humans reliably ordinary, as my grandmother would say, capable of utterly reconceiving themselves in the world through which they move? Oh, yes. Yes. Nietzsche reminds us that we are free to respond to that of which we are made, but we are also bound by that which has made us. We're wrestling with something that's given to us. What about absolute freedom? A self unfettered from the past in all its variegated and terrible glory. Well, of course, and this brings us to our final conception of the self. There he is, Jean-Paul Sartre and his colleague, Simone de Beauvoir. There they are in their later years. And there I couldn't, I couldn't resist giving you the, <laughs> where the existentialist, the, the place where they no longer exist. Um, and it's, but there's, it's, it's interesting, their, their gravestone um, in Montparnasse, in this, uh, the cemetery where they're buried, uh, is covered, is now covered 
in lip prints. People come and kiss their gravestones. It's really quite cute. So they provide us with, with existentialism. I'm sure all of you have a rough idea what existentialism is, right? It sounds kind of fruity and ill-kempt, like you're going to put on a beret and drink absinthe and hang out at Les Dumagots, which sounds a little fun, I suppose. But the word existentialism indicates a very basic philosophical enterprise, namely, what is the nature of the self and what is the source of significance or meaning in the life of the human self? And the derivative existential question is even more blunt. What is it like to be alive and hope and suffer in the ways that we do? So consider the famous Sartrean remark, existence precedes essence. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, Plato, of course, argues that essence comes before existence. Our immortal souls become embodied at birth, and we are meant to recollect the forms that it contains. And Sartre's slogan neatly reverses this, right? Our, our lives as embodied creatures come before, precede the conceptual shape that we give to that life. We're thrown into existence, and we begin to make sense of it. So, all those metaphysical concepts come after we show up on the scene and only when we posit them. So, what is this existence like? Sartre begins by examining what is immediately available to us. And what is that? Our consciousness, of course. Right, right now, looks to me like everyone in here is conscious. Right? And having thoughts about this and that. Right? So the emphasis on the thinking stream, in order to ask, answer the question, who are we, is, of course, Cartesian. And there he is, Descartes. Right? Uh, and Descartes, of course, argues that, uh, that, we, that the, the mental is rock bottom that we are, in fact, this mental stream. In fact, of course, as you surely know, this, this most famous sentence in Western philosophy, I think, therefore, I exist. The one thing that he cannot doubt is that something is there having these thoughts. Now, this place of departure is important. Sartre and Beauvoir argue that existential philosophy must begin with consciousness, because consciousness is what distinguishes us from objects in the environment or from mere animal life. However, and this is important, they would point out that, in fact, your, your, any lived act, uh, in a conscious act, cannot get a look at that which makes it possible. So we have to distinguish between consciousness and our subsequent reflections on it. So when Descartes performs his famous experiment, can he find something that is indubitable, that, he, that is, he cannot doubt? And he's able to doubt all manner of things, including whether or not he's actually where he thinks he is, but in fact could be dreaming the whole thing, right? Uh, 
and that's all very interesting. But then you ask the question, who was it entertaining those thoughts, right? Who is the conscious source of those particular thoughts? And my colleague, uh, Professor Kosaru, will have more to say about Descartes next week. From this, Sartre and Beauvoir conclude that there is a pre-reflective consciousness that is the basis for reflection. And Sartre puts it this way. The I think is not always in consciousness. It only appears when I reflect on it. So we begin to see the consequences of adopting this existential picture of the I, of the ego. The I, the ego, is now located out in the world. The center of activity is now what Sartre will call the transcendental field. So for Descartes, right, the I, the thinking I, is the source of all meaning-giving activity. For Sartre, the transcendental field is the source. The I is the pseudo-source of activity. And you're thinking, what? Hmm, that sounds rather puzzling. Well, who is this egoless self that is having this experience? This is why he asserts that the self is not and cannot be an object for our study. Because anything we say about it as an object leaves out this sense of self that is always a feature of it. So any act of consciousness, says Sartre and Beauvoir, will have a thematic and non-thematic aspect. And it is that complex or whole that is the experiencing self. This is the so-called two-tiered account of consciousness. Your consciousness, right now, says Sartre, your consciousness is both non-positional and positional. So this is what he means when he describes, a uh, very antique example, describes the streetcar as something to be caught, right? So you're running for, let's say you're running for an Uber. Let's, let's update the example. You're running to catch something. And someone hails you, says, hello, and, and says, what, what are you doing? And then it becomes clear to you, suddenly you, you become present to yourself as, oh, I am catching the Uber, Right. Were you thinking about that a moment before? I think not. You were thinking, wait. <laughs> you were focused on the car. So consciousness for Sartre is pure, open awareness. That's who you fundamentally are in this picture. It is open receptivity to everything. So our 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 positional consciousness, which is all we could ever come to know, and you cannot know pure open awareness, it has no content, but you're aware of, of course, you're positing all the world around you. So, so, so imagine, right? You posit as you, were, as you were stopped when you were running for that car. Oh, I, I am running for the car, right? We, we got, a chair was given as an example earlier, so we got a chair, Right? Bus to be caught. All right. Now let's try this one. Professor Silverstein. Right? Now, were, were you thinking about being Professor Silverstein 
No. But suddenly you spring into, right? There you are. But where, where was, where were you a moment before? Right. Yeah. All right. So I'll keep going. So, so mail, right? Alarm clock to answer. We know that one, right? Evil, holy, and we could keep going, but I think you get the picture that the positing activity is what, that's what we do. In fact, we are, as he would put it in his Sartrean way, we're condemned to do it. We're the positing creature. But what makes that possible? And what makes it possible is this open field of awareness that is perfectly empty. All right. So we, we get it wrong, says Sartre, if we attribute right, all of this to, to a reified ego, to an I. Right? That it re- that, in other words, that reverses the order of constitution. That you are fundamentally this ability to posit, and when you are aware of yourself, as Professor Silverstein, or I, me, whatever, right? That that emerges from this conscious field. So this is all to say, and you've already drawn the conclusion that you should. Who are you fundamentally? You're nothing. Which sounds a little alarming, right? But we could put it in a, in a, in a more cheerful way. We could say you are pure potential or indeed pure open awareness. But the the point is that you are featureless fundamentally. The features you have and the features of the world you move through are there because you put them there. And that's a kind of disturbing thought as well. All right, now we enter the properly existential dimension of this account. Sartre tells us that traditional accounts of the mind, like Plato, like Descartes, ones that claim that we have an ego, a soul, a self, right? These accounts turn us into an object, and to do this is to flee from the existential demands of being human. And what would those demands be? Right? Well, given what you are fundamentally, aren't you a pure freedom? if you have no features or characteristics or qualities. So such accounts that give you a soul, give you an ego, give you a self, right, are fleeing from the freedom, the radical freedom that characterizes consciousness. So our acts and ourselves are reflectively constructed. They do not, on this picture, flow from a source or nature. And the addition of the ego structure to this this receptivity of consciousness provides a kind of illegitimate placeholder. Now, the disagreement with traditional accounts, like Plato, like Aristotle, like Descartes, I could keep going, is twofold. So there's the ontological objection that the ego, the soul, the self is a cumbersome addition to a perfectly workable structure. We can explain what goes on in consciousness without having to add on this structure. So why do it? But there's an existential objection 
accounts such as these are a cover-up. They cover up the terrible freedom that is consciousness. Consciousness is radically free and thus free to choose to do anything at any time like right now. Hmm. All right. Uh, to illustrate this notion, and, and there are lots to choose from, but I picked one of my favorites. Uh, Sartre gives us a clinical case from the French psychologist Pierre Janet. And here it is. Consciousness is frightened by its own spontaneity because it senses this spontaneity as beyond freedom. This is clearly seen in an example from Janet, from his files. A young bride was in terror when her husband left her alone of sitting at the window and summoning the passers-by like a prostitute. Nothing in her education, in her past, nor in her character could serve as an explanation of such a fear. She found herself monstrously free, and this vertiginous freedom appeared to her at the opportunity for this action, which she was afraid of doing. But this vertical, vertigo is comprehensible only if consciousness suddenly appeared to itself as infinitely overflowing in its possibilities, the I, which ordinarily serves as its unity. Perhaps the essential role of the ego is to mask from consciousness this spontaneity. So this clinical study obviously describes a, a neurotic episode suffered by a newly married woman. And as you can see, I think, that this is not the way that, that, that Dr. Genet would, would approach this, right? Uh, he's, he's um, indeed, he is not going to be pursuing, Sartre will not be pursuing deeply embedded psychic elements or some childhood trauma. Why not? Right, because, because she is fundamentally nothing. She's fundamentally pure, open awareness. So we're not going to proceed in the traditional psychological pursuit, right? Uh, so the source of her trouble cannot be some trauma from her past. He rejects that. Now, like Nietzsche, Sartre is an anti-essentialist. But notice the profound difference here. There will be no archaeological dig, will there? That, I presume, would be the Nietzschean approach. What is it within you, within you, right, uh, that has created this disturbance? Can't do that because she is fundamentally, as you just said, pure, open awareness and lacking content altogether. Sartre's diagnosis is as follows. In the turmoil uh, of the radical transition, and you have to remember this is in the um, earlier part of the 20th century in France, right? That this, this young woman uh, who suddenly, by saying some words to the civic authorities, to the religious authorities, by saying words, right? Suddenly she has a new name. 
She has a new residence. She has a new rights. It's dizzying. Go from one to the other by speaking a few words. And Sartre argues that she becomes this, it's vertiginous because she gets a frisson of her fundamental freedom, that she is fundamentally pure open awareness. And that, yes, she's now acquired new dishes, a new, a new address, a new name, all of that. She has this new identity that's very carefully constructed. But how did that happen? It's because she chose to do so. And she could choose to do otherwise. And she's becoming aware of this. And the awareness is, in fact, the source of her neurotic response. So, back to our question. Who are you? You'll have discovered that the title of my talk and its disjunct is misleading. The self, yourself, is both discovered and made. It is discovered in the kind of archaeological work that Nietzsche urges us to do, and there we will uncover remnants of our Platonic and Aristotelian past and a great deal of other material, bits and pieces, the cultural stuff that constitutes us. Beauvoir and Sartre also recognize that we bear the stamp of our cultural lineage, but that we are free at every moment, right now, to change what we are doing to become other than we are. In this account, your nothingness is a ticket to anything you can conceive. Again, who are you? An immortal soul? A biological, hierarchical, civic animal? A creature made of cultural habits and practices? A creature that has the potential to creatively respond to that inheritance? Or are you essentially a pure freedom, able to endlessly remake yourself and the world around you? Well, we will return to our initial observation. Your metaphysical commitments matter. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.